We're in the Gospel of Mark. Our scripture is found in Mark chapter 9. Beginning in verse 30. This is Jesus and his disciples now. They've been on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've traveled a little bit. They've had a few episodes. They've had a dramatic healing, as we saw last week. And so now the story continues. And they went out from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued over with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then over to chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them and laying his hands on them. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I heard an old preacher say once that your opening remarks are your introduction. So if you get up and talk about how glad you are to be here and who, who you know and you know how long it's been and all these sort of things, you've sort of squandered your sermon introduction. Well, since I didn't make a very good grade in preaching in seminary anyway, I've just not been real conscientious about following all the orders and the guides of the homiletical industry. So I'm going to do something at the outset that has really a, not a whole lot to do with the sermon. But it does, I think it'll help us. It may help us more than anything. We're disciples of the Lord. We followed the Lord. We've heard his voice. He said, come. We followed. But the truth is that so many of us really don't understand all that the Lord teaches. Quite a few of us by the Lord's teaching. Uh, Some of us just ignore It's clear and plain what the Lord said. We just don't really want to hear it. There are a lot of difficult sayings. Um, I think the main thing, though, most of us are kind of centered on our own world, our own agenda. We still have our cross that we have to bear for Him taken up, but we haven't let go of our own way of thinking. 
we haven't let go of our own success, our own um, considerations and concerns. We have, haven't really forsaken all to follow the Lord. We, we're following the Lord, but we're still hanging on to a lot of things. And I think <clears throat> that was true of the disciples. I sympathize with Caroline. There's something in this room. I choked up so bad at the prayer, I couldn't hardly speak. So there's something that's getting in our throats. So breathe real shallow. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we follow the Lord, but we don't necessarily uh, take our eyes off of ourselves. We still are pretty concerned with what we want and, and, to, uh, and the way we feel about things and our perspective, the way we see things, our, our, our view. And you see that in the life of the disciples, just in this little chunk of scripture that we've covered these last two or three weeks, we see several of these things. When Jesus was with them on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the Bible says that when they were up there, they didn't know what to say and they were terrified. There's a, they were concerned about themselves. They, what, are our, what about our safety? What about our particular uh, uh, needs up here? We'll build three tabernacles maybe for Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, but where are we going to stay? We see it again when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says, now not the three that went up there, but the, but the remaining disciples were arguing with the scribes. They were debating and arguing with the scribes. As I mentioned last week, it's not a bad idea to argue with the scribes. The scribes need to be argued with. Jesus argued with the scribes, but they were, they were in that mode of, of their opinion and their outlook and their perspective. And we see it as they continue. In the middle of everything, they were powerless to heal the little boy. Remember that from last week? They just had no capacity. They were literally without power to heal. Now the Lord heal the little boy and the Lord instructed them on how this has to be done and that is with considerable amount of prayer and now we see here that in the very beginning of our assigned text the the disciples are listening to Jesus speak and listen to what it says um, he was teaching the disciples saying to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men he's talking about his his arrest, his trial, all that's going to happen to him in Jerusalem shortly. And they will kill him. He's speaking of his crucifixion, his death. Just like he'd been talking to Elijah and Moses on the mountain about his exodus, his decease. He is teaching them in, when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus is teaching them the core rubrics of the gospel. How would you like to be walking along with Jesus and Jesus teaching about his death, his trial, all the issues at trial, his suffering, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection? Jesus is teaching this. And look what the scripture says they did not understand. And they were afraid to ask. And we see that also in our main part of our text today. When they got to where they were going, they'd gotten back to Galilee, back to Capernaum. And they're in the house. And so the Lord said, what were you discussing on the way? 
And they kept silent. <laughs> they didn't want to admit what they had been to, as if the Lord didn't know. He was just calling them out and just bringing it to the fore. Fellas, there's something we need to understand. Now, what is it you were arguing about, discussing? And they were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus answered that question. And by the way, later on, there's going to be an episode where James and John, the sons of, of Zebedee, were arguing amongst themselves as to who would be the greater. Who would sit on the right hand, that is the hand of authority, and who would sit on the left hand, that is the hand of service. And it was a very similar discussion. It occurs a little later. And Jesus addresses the issue of greatness in the kingdom. Who is the greatest? By two examples. The first, he sets in their midst a child. And the second one, he tells them about the servant. Now, I'm not going to talk about the servant this morning. We don't have time. But the word for servant is the word doulos. It's the word bond slave. And Jesus told the disciples, James and John in particular, later on he made it very explicit. Here he says it, but he makes it very explicit there when he tells them that the servant is the greatest one in the kingdom of God. It's not like the Gentile kingdoms where you go with responsibility, which leads to authority, which leads to power. That's not the structure in leadership in God's community, in God's kingdom. It's inverted. The one who has the leadership, the greatness, the one who has the most reward is the one who is the servant of all. A bond slave. It's two words. The word servant is we get our word deacon. And that service is humble and hardworking and very heavy on responsibility. But the bond slave is a different person in the ancient world. The bond slave is a person with no standing, no rights, no will of his own, and absolutely enslaved to his master. Whatever the master calls, the bond slave does. And the Apostle Paul is proud to call himself that kind of servant. Over and over in the epistles, he introduces himself as the bond slave of Jesus Christ. And who do we think of as probably the premier apostle, especially when it comes to New Testament scripture? The apostle Paul. And yet he saw himself as Christ had tried to explain to his own disciples. This is the one. This is the one in the kingdom. Is that, that bond slave. I'm telling you that with your ego and with your agenda and your own personal life, it's hard to become a bond. It's easy to become a servant if you think of it in terms of employment because there's reward, there's wages, there's responsibility and authority and respect commensurate with your duties and your obligations. There's a sense in which a servant kind of can stand up and knows his place, but not a bond slave. A bond slave is someone that is yielded 
submissive and open to do what he or she is commanded by the master to do. There's two extremes in the ancient world. The bond slave, the doulos, and the kurios, the Lord. And that's the relationship that we have with Jesus. It is that of bond slave and Lord and Master. He is the Lord and Master of all. He is the highest. We are the lowest. Now that, that picture is uh, very utilitarian and I think very helpful. But when Jesus was going to speak to the whole group, not about leadership or greatness or authority or anything like that, just what he pictures it to be like and the way he sees it, he takes a child and puts the child in the middle of them. And by doing that, the Lord brings his disciples to the place where I think we need to be. And that is that of a child. Today's Father's Day. The relationship we have is that of father and child with God. He is our father. He is our father not only by creation, but he is our father by new creation, by regeneration. We have been born of the Spirit of God and John, who was in this group listening to Jesus teach this, when he comes to write his letters to the churches in the New Testament era, he uses that phrase, child, over and over and over and over. He speaks of his little children. In fact, let me just read it for you. It's one of the most fantastic passages anywhere around in the, in the New Testament uh, because it's... Uh, in 1 John, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. And then he gives all of his, his reasons to write. And they have to do with the saving uh, of their souls by Christ himself on the cross. But there's a hymn that's in that very, uh, very first chapter. Listen, listen to the, the language of it. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for Christ's namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. That's the relationship. That's the context of life in the kingdom of God. And notice as I pointed out many times, Jesus speaks of entering the kingdom. We speak of building the kingdom and expanding the kingdom, but that's not the New Testament language. The New Testament language is receiving the kingdom. It's a gift of God's grace. Everything we have, it is given to us. It is granted. It is a bestowal upon us. And we enter into it. And the way we enter into it is by new birth. 
That is, we have been brought from death to life. We have been, by the Spirit of God, made alive. And now we are as a little child. And that's what the Scriptures emphasize as far as our life is concerned. When the Apostle Paul reviews our condition, he talks about what kind of child we were before our regeneration, and then what kind of child we are to be, or we are, after our new birth, our regeneration, our resurrection. Listen to the way Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is work in the sons of disobedience. That's who we were. We were children, sons of disobedience. John's going to exclaim what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. The difference is the love of God in bestowing upon us salvation by His grace. Listen to the further description here as I continue to read in verse 3. The sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were children, okay. But we were children of wrath. We had the wrath of God abiding on us. We had the wrath of God awaiting us. We had the wrath of God working itself out in our own lives as the consequences of our sin. We were reaping in our own flesh the things that we were doing that were sinful. There's no hope, he says later in that chapter. No hope, without hope, without God in the world. And that's okay to be that way because you're just like everybody else. You're just as good as the next guy in that condition. A lot of people claim that. That's their, that's their hope of salvation is I'm compared to, you know, an axe murderer, that's a sinner. You know, a rapist, child molester, that's a sinner. But me, I'm okay. I'm not necessarily that bad because I'm as good as the next person. In fact, the way I see it, I'm better than most people. If I can be honest and evaluate my life, I've had a pretty good uh, life. I've not committed any high crimes, very few misdemeanors. I'm okay. And that's what Paul says. He said, you were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth right. No, not one. They have all gone astray. They've all turned their own way. We're doing the fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the passions and the mind. Paul describes it here and Paul tells us what it is and Isaiah describes it. The prophet said that we're sick from the head to the foot 
will full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's not too appetizing of a description, but that's our condition before we're made a child of God. And here's how we're made a child of God. I'll continue reading. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He had burst into one of his sentences, which I read over, where he says, by grace you have been saved. He now just puts it in the main part of the sentence in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. Here's what we are. We're children of God. And we are new creatures. In fact, that's the word that's used in verse 10. For we are His workmanship. It's the word to make. The word to craft. It's actually the word that means a masterpiece. We are the masterpiece of God. By grace, we are children of God. Been made so by new birth, new creation, resurrection, spiritual resurrection, resurrection of the soul. We are His workmanship created Here's your new creation in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's why I think we need to be children. Because that's how you're going to operate. The the particular features of a child are sort of what you're going to need in the kingdom of God. First of all, a child is trusting. A child has an implicit faith that is made explicit when they trust everything around them. It's almost a naivete, but it's a simplicity. A child feels the love of a father, the love of a mother, the love of a sibling, the love of a grandparent. It's, it's emotional. I still remember. I'm an old, old man. But I still remember the feeling I had when my grandmother, my dad's mother, would hold me and hug me and, and, and let me stay with her every hour of the day in the kitchen, in the cotton field, in the garden, in the barn. I was always right there with her. And I still remember that feeling. It's a, it, it is a love as well. And it's an obedience. A child has the feel of I need to do what I'm told. It's a commandment. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. But a child listens. A child hears. A child obeys. It's a sign of malady when the child begins to rebel. When the child begins to see the outgrowth of that remaining sin and that depravity within his soul that begins to work through him. Children are loving, trusting. They are obedient. A small child needs to be 
the emotional position we have when the arms of a heavenly father. And that's what happened here. The people were sitting in their children to Jesus. And here's another place where the disciples just messed up. <laughs> they were not only keeping them from bringing their children to Jesus, but they were rebuking the parents for doing so. They still were hung up on this notion of authority and, and uh, the unapproachable nature of Jesus if in His office. Jesus said, suffer, allow, let, permit the little children to come unto me. These are the ones, these are the ones that reflect, these are the ones that manifest, that set forth the attributes of a child of the kingdom of God. In fact, you're not going to get there if you don't have that faith love, obedience, engendered in your souls. And then Jesus did something I think that was very amazing. The Bible says He took them in His arms. He touched them. He laid His hands on them. And He blessed them. The key words there are the word kairos, His hands are mentioned in the text. And eulogy, the Greek word eulogy. In other words, he spoke a good word over the children. He blessed them. And this is exactly what God's grace comes to us in conveyance, is the hands that are placed upon us. You see it in the Old Testament. Abraham, well, Noah blessed his three sons. And in that blessing, which we'll, by the way, here's a gratuitous plug. We'll pick up with that when we talk about Abraham uh, in our Bible study coming up here next month. Uh, we're going to talk about Abraham. And the first lesson is going to be everything that went into getting us to Abraham, including Adam and Noah and some of the other people. And Noah, when he blessed his three sons, he laid out the course of redemptive history in that simple blessing that he gave them. And, of course, there was curses as well. Abraham blessed Isaac. Isaac blessed Jacob. And Jacob blessed his sons and two grandsons. It is the power to bless, to convey through the laying on of hands that blessing. And Paul just almost shouts as we have received every blessing in Christ Jesus. It is Christ who bestows upon us not only the life, the eternal life, but all the blessings that flow from it. Many of them are temporal. We enjoy them now. A deep peace, a joy, a satisfaction, a freedom from the slavery of condemning and, and, and ruining sin, a capacity to love one another, an ability to appreciate and understand and live by the things of the Lord and all the blessings of eternity, which I'm out of time. I can't go into them. We're just children. Has the Lord taken you in His arms? Has He laid His hands on you and blessed you? 
Do you feel and know with some certainty in your soul that you have received a grace, a benefit, a blessing, a bestowal? You've been given an inheritance from Christ Himself. Has that been an occurrence in your spiritual and emotional life throughout your lifetime? There's only one thing you do. You do the same thing that the people there here did. You come to Jesus. You come to Jesus. He has that waiting. He is waiting. He, is, he has that available for you. And you say, well, I just don't know. I don't know. And well, just pray the Lord will lead you. Plead to the Father to take you to the Son. And He will do it. What are the greatest Father's Day messages we can think of? And that is the Father leading the little children to the Son for his, their salvation and everything else. We're going to sing and close, How Great Thou Art. John, if you'll make it to one of these keyboards. And we're going to sing. There are four stanzas. Ah, oh, let's go ahead and sing them all. Was, was that our pitch? No, 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 okay. Let's stand together and sing, How Great Thou Art.